Welcome to the Pan Am Podcast, brought to you by the Pan Am Museum in Garden City, New York. This podcast and our museum are dedicated to celebrating the legacy of the world's most iconic airline, Pan American World Airways. My name is Tom Betty, and I'm the host of this program. Thank you for joining us. This program is sponsored by the generous support of Mr. Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC Entertainment Holdings Incorporated. The Pan Am Museum Foundation is a nonprofit organization. Please visit our website for more information at thepanammuseum.org. Again, our website is thepanammuseum.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. If you are using Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving a review. It will help others discover this program. If you're not familiar with Pan Am, welcome. We are honored to have you here and for you to learn about what we're all about. If you already know of Pan Am, worked for or flown on the airline, or just love our history, it's good to be with you again. So with that, let's get this episode in the air, so to speak. Welcome aboard your Pan American Jet Clipper. In this episode, we are joined by Dan Colusi, who served as Pan Am's President and Chief Operating Officer in the 1970s. Dan will share his experiences of working in the airline industry during a pivotal point in Pan Am history. But first, an update on this podcast and our YouTube channel. As of June 2023, the Pan Am podcast has been downloaded almost 100,000 times in more than 156 countries. And our YouTube channel has over 2 million views, totaling 270,000 hours of viewing time with almost 12,000 subscribers. Truly a remarkable achievement that could not have been possible without people like you. Also, we are cross-promoting this program with another podcast for both of us to be introduced to each other's listeners, especially because we both love aviation. So I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a fun new podcast called So There I Was. If you're a fan of aviation or simply enjoy hearing captivating stories, then this is the podcast for you. Hosted by former Marine pilots Fig and Repeat, this podcast shares firsthand accounts of flying experiences that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you're in the mood for something funny, scary, poignant, or tragic, this podcast has it all. With a relaxed and conversational tone, the pilots share their stories like you're sitting right there with them at the bar after a flight. Hear from fighter pilots, astronauts, Blue Angels, aircraft carrier captains, Navy and Coast Guard rescue pilots, and many more. Most have survived near-death experiences. Others have overcome incredible disabilities to continue to fly airplanes. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Hear what it feels like to be shot off the bow of a carrier or into space. Experience the terror of landing on a pitching deck at night, so black that the pilots can barely taxi afterwards because his legs are shaking so badly. 
Hear firsthand how lonely it is in the middle of the ocean in a life raft on a dark night in eight-foot seas. Each story is unique and told with a level of detail that will make you feel like you were there. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll laugh until you cry. But one thing is you will not be bored. So again, the podcast is called So There I Was. It's how all great aviation tales begin, and you can find it on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Now on to our interview with Dan Calusi. Dan Calusi was born on June 3, 1931. He just celebrated his 92nd birthday, and everyone at the Pan Am Museum wishes him the happiest of birthdays. After serving in the U.S. Coast Guard after college, Mr. Calusi began his career in engineering at General Electric, and then went on to work for American Airlines and Northeast Airlines in executive marketing positions before joining the prestigious advertising agency Wells Rich and Green as senior vice president overseeing the Trans World Airlines account. As a result of a chance encounter with the Pan Am CEO on a TWA plane over the Atlantic, Mr. Colusi was hired by Pan Am in 1970 as Vice President of Marketing and Development, and in a short period of time was promoted to Senior Vice President of the same division. In 1976, Mr. Colusi was promoted to Executive Vice President and was elected as a member of the Board of Directors of Pan American World Airways. Two years later, in May 1978, he was elected President and Chief Operating Officer of Pan American World Airways by the company's Board of Directors. William Sewell remained Pan Am CEO and Chairman. He left Pan Am in 1980 to pursue other opportunities in the airline and aerospace industries. Mr. Colusi is a very successful and respected businessman. Among his many pursuits, he served as chairman and CEO of Canadian Pacific Airlines and is the former chairman of Iridium Satellite, which he took out of bankruptcy in 2000 and rebuilt it into a global and profitable satellite network providing communication services for over 1 million customers worldwide. Today, Mr. Colusi is the chairman of Gemini Capital a venture capital fund investing in new technologies. Welcome to the program, sir. Yes, uh, Tom. Uh, uh, pleased to be here. So let's start with uh, where you grew up and how you got involved with the aviation business. I grew up in western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh until I was about 13 years old. Uh, I started in aviation uh, when I was in fourth grade because part of my family had a farm up in um, Cottersport, near uh, Pennsylvania, and the three sons of my, would be my uh, my grandfather's brother, started an airport. So they had they had three planes, a grass strip, they had a hangar and so forth. <laughs> they had air shows there and uh, rocket cars, the whole nine yards. And it was, it was free, and if you went to Boy Scouts, we'd park a car for you. <laughs> this was in, uh, let's see, I was, uh, I was about uh, in one fourth grade, what year, about nine years old, I guess. And what year was this? Uh, this would have been uh, 1930. Let's see, I was nine years old. It would have been 1939. Mm -hmm. 
So I had my first flight, and I was in fourth grade, okay, in a Piper Cub and uh, in the back seat and so forth. It was great. Uh, so I was uh, aviation oriented. My whole family I had several of my older cousins, like 19 and 20. One, one especially that I was close to was a P-51 pilot in World War II. So he was my hero. So I was involved in aviation right from the start. Then, of course, uh, World War II uh, broke out when I was 11 years old. Of course, my father was too old to serve. He was 40, but he was recruited to, uh, because he was an architect and a builder. And he was recruited to go to Tampa, Florida to build concrete ships, uh, Liberty ships. A Liberty ship is 460 foot long. They were, they were, you know, cargo vessels. They were the standard ones that were being built in World War II to carry cargo. So there was steel shortage. They decided to try to build these ships out of concrete. And that was done in Tampa, Florida. So the whole family was uh, got moved to Tampa, Florida. I had uh, a younger brother and a younger sister, and we all moved to Florida when I was in uh, eighth grade and so forth. So during the war we spent there, my father participated in this and they built 24 concrete Liberty ships, okay? <laughs> and uh, they worked fine. And uh, after the war, they were all sunk and made into breakwaters and stuff, but uh, they carried cargo and did their, did their job <laughs> in World War II. So I finished high school in, in Pennsylvania and then decided to go to prep school in uh, Washington, D.C. Because I'd moved around so much in my high school, I, I, uh, I wanted to submit my uh, education a little better. So uh, I went to a boarding school in, uh, in Washington as a postgraduate uh, situation for my high school. And uh, while I was there, uh, we had a visit from a Coast Guard officer, and he showed us these wonderful pictures about the Coast Guard Academy and the sailing on the Eagle and uh, all those wonderful things like that. And I so I took the exam and placed uh, 31st in the country. So I decided, well, I, just, I didn't know anything about the Coast Guard Academy, but it looked like a lot of uh, interesting stuff. And you got an engineering degree. So, so I, I decided to go there, which I did, and spent my four years there. We had an aircraft station academy, so I, we got into aviation there and in our... In our second class year, we spent at an air station in North Carolina and, you know, got some flight time in there as well. So I was very much oriented towards that and, of course, my family orientation towards aviation as well. On active duty, this is during the tail end of the Korean War, I, I was in the Coast Guard. I was stationed in Yokosuka, Japan on a ship that was patrolling off of the you know Korean coast to get down to aviators or what happened, whatever was required of us. Uh, in the Coast Guard, to become an aviator, you have to spend your first 18 months at sea duty. Then you go to uh, Pensacola and become a naval aviator, and, and that's 18 months. So you have to serve another three years. So I decided, even though I wanted to go to flight school, I just didn't see spending all those years because I really wanted to get out and have a civilian career. So what was your first job out of the Coast Guard? So I spent my uh, uh, my three years at sea duty, uh, get out of the Coast Guard, and then I was recruited by General Electric in their flight propulsion division. And that was my first uh, civilian job. And uh, I worked as an engineer in the flight propulsion division on jet engines. That, that was an era, that was the beginning of 1956. 
And it was the early days of jet engine. We did a lot of development work on uh, new jet engines. So I became quite an expert on jet engines. And uh, during that uh, session, I was in Boston. Actually, I decided even when I was in the Coast Guard to go to graduate school. And I applied to Harvard. And at that point, I went to Harvard and got my MBA and uh, graduated in 1965. The majority of my classmates went to Wall Street because that's where you made all the money and so forth. <laughs> but I just, I just couldn't see myself doing that. So I really settled in on the airlines because, for one thing, I took a, you know, I, I took a look at the airlines, the management teams, and so forth. I interviewed uh, several airlines, and I had a great interview with the uh, senior vice president of operations at American Airlines, who was a Naval Academy graduate and also a Harvard Business School graduate. And he convinced me this would be a great, uh, you know, career for me and so forth. So that fit right in with my with my goals. Uh, I should say, uh, in the meantime, when I got out of the Coast Guard, I went to a uh, commercial aviation school using the GI Bill. You know, went through uh, and got my commercial license. So, so I was a commercial pilot at that point. So this all fit in. I had uh, I have an engineering background, and I had uh, an MBA, and also my uh, commercial pilot's license. So I thought it was it, it would be great to look at the airlines. This uh, individual that uh, recruited he was impressive, and he gave me a good sales pitch, and uh, turned out to be my mentor. So that was great. So I went to work for American Airlines, uh, based in Manhattan, and. 266 Third Avenue, the headquarters of American. After the first year and a half or so, the first within the first two years, uh, my mentor then was uh, offered the job to go as president of Northeast Airlines in Boston. Uh, Northeast Airlines had been a small uh, regional uh, New England airline, but they were acquired by Store Broadcasting, and Store wanted to expand it, and they were able to get routes to Florida out of all the Northeastern cities and the Bahamas, both the Freeport and uh, Nassau and so forth. So the airline was in a big expansion, going to uh, some new uh, exciting destinations at that point, out of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, up uh, down to not only Florida, but to the the islands. So uh, that was a great experience for me. And I became the uh, executive vice president of marketing. So I had all that work under me. And now I was away from engineering, and I was doing some pretty interesting things in marketing, which I which I enjoyed a lot. Okay, so you're a young man at this time in your late 20s. American Airline was your first airline job. And then you followed your mentor to Northeast Airlines, building up quite the resume. What happened next? At that point, I was uh, recruited by Mary Wells. Uh, name may not mean anything to you. She was a very successful woman who started the first female-owned advertising agency uh, in New York called Wells Rich and Green. She, uh, she had two partners that were men. But she, was the, uh, she was the leader, very dynamic gal. Her husband was also the uh, CEO of Braniff Airlines. So staying in the airline circuit here. And she hired me because she had, she had the Braniff account because her husband was CEO. And in those days, she did a very dramatic thing. She she painted all the airplanes in Brana uh, pastel colors, pink. <laughs> very successful campaign. It was just unique. And Brana had started to fly to South America and they had 747 and so forth. So, uh, but then she landed the TWA account, which was a huge account for her. 
So she recruited me to come to go from Northeast to uh, uh, back to New York and uh, work for her and take over the TWA account. So that's how uh, that's how I got back over you know, involved with TWA. And uh, so I developed some some new programs for them, and uh, and they worked. For our listeners, Wells, Rich, and Green was a famous ad agency, most notably behind the I Love New York campaign, Plop, Plop, Fizz, Fizz, Alka-Seltzer campaign, and the Raise Your Hand If You're Sure deodorant campaign, just to name a few. So, Mr. Colusi, you told me before the interview about a chance encounter you had with someone on a certain flight over the Atlantic that changed the course of your career. Let's talk about that. I was flying around the, you know, the the, the TWA system, uh, flying to the Paris Air Show uh, on TWA, and uh, and I think you must have heard that story because you mentioned it. So I uh, just by sheer accident, I, uh, my seatmate was uh, Najib Halabi, who was the then the CEO of Pan Am, and he said uh, he started a chat, of course, and. Uh, so when I found out who he was, I said, what are you doing at TWA, by the way? And he said, oh, he said, I do this because I like to check out the competition, see what it's like. Good idea. Uh, so we were chatting away, and he said, yeah, I've heard about you. You're, you're really giving us a bad time. And uh, so I know who you are, but I mean, I don't know you personally, but I know about you. So we chatted, had a nice chat across the Atlantic. And uh, that was it. I went to the Paris Air Show and so forth, and we did our... Um, uh, TWA thing. I got back to New York, and um, oh, maybe a couple of weeks later, I had a call from a uh, from a headhunter I knew, and he said, "Hey, uh, uh, Najee Palby like to have lunch with you. That would you be willing to do that?" And I said, "Oh, sure, why not? Nice guy." So we had lunch, and uh, he said, uh, "Would you be willing to come to Pan Am because I'm looking for somebody to be involved in marketing and has some new ideas and you know more aggressive and so forth." So I said, well, that would be of interest. I, you know, I'm making a lot of money and working for an advertising agency. So I went up and said, he said, well, we can, you know, probably can uh, work that out. So I interviewed uh, with him and some of the other guys. I could, I could see the marketing guys at Pan Am were not that interested in, in my company. They were satisfied. Uh, but um, so what Najib was trying to do was just, you know, stir things up because the head of marketing at Pan Am was called uh, the vice president of, they didn't use the term marketing, traffic, vice president of traffic. That was a traditional online airline title because, you know, they were responsible for traffic, for getting the uh, traffic, and that's the title they used. So they were a little bit behind the times. Well, still, a, still a wonderful airline. Uh, J.W. Thompson was their ad agency, and of course, they were global large agency they did some very conventional ads good good stuff but um, you know not very innovative and pretty routine so so i decided to accept i mean you know it was an uh, opportunity to get into a uh, airline of course uh i could see then that they were already tr- a troubled company they had they had lost money and uh and they were struggling. Still, you know, they they served 120 cities and I think 85 countries and something like that. Still a very global company, but they had been denied any kind of domestic routes, so they were stuck. They flew out of 10 gateway cities in the U.S., outbound and inbound, but couldn't 
even on the round-the-world flight, where the uh, left from New York and San Francisco to uh, around the world, it took five airplanes to do that. But they couldn't couldn't fly transcons. Passengers in New York uh, had to get off. They wanted to go in, in the interior or the West Coast and take another airline. The same thing if they were coming uh, eastbound from the Pacific. It was a strange situation. They uh, said, that, you know, why is this? Because we had no feed traffic. We had to get everything. So we had to make deals with the domestic carriers and uh, to get past feet to feet traffic into our uh, gateway cities. So I found out pretty quick, uh, Pan Am was in a tight situation because, you know, you're denied feed from all of the, the huge uh, marketplace in the U.S. And you just had to, we could obviously promote in those cities and, you know, Certainly Pan Am was, uh, was well known, but if you wanted to fly from uh, Columbus, Ohio to uh, overseas, uh, uh, you took a domestic carrier and then the domestic carriers, all of them, uh, favored the foreign flags because the foreign flags gave them these extraordinary deals. When you share uh, a passenger with domestic international, you, uh, you share the fares and there's a, there's a formula for that where the international guys some extremely uh, lucrative deals to the domestic carriers. So they were inclined to feed Lufthansa, British Airways, uh, Japan Airlines, what have you. And uh, that was a big problem for Pan Am because we, we didn't have any feed. And then the, the domestic carriers were favoring uh, the international carriers who are our competitors. I mean, to New York, London, for example, we had eight carriers flying New York, London. It was a fight, uh, you know, to get carriers. Uh, the travel agents were the same way. They were leisure part of the national travel. It was over half the business. So that was handled mostly by travel agents. So it was, uh, Pan Am was in a, in a real bind. So I finally worked my way up the ranks. And then in the meantime, uh, Hallaby was, I have to say, he was fired basically by the board. And uh, he went, and that's when I brought in Bill Sewell. I'd actually known Bill Sewell. Tell us more about that. When I was at Northeast, he actually offered me a job to come to work with him. And he, his first job out of the Air Force was to be president of Rolls-Royce uh, North America, which was the engine company. And he, uh, but I said, you know, no, thank you. I'm in the airline business now, Bill. So, uh, but at any rate, so he comes to Pan Am, and obviously I know him and have a nice relationship. Uh, our, our wives knew each other and so forth. And uh, I think I helped him, and he obviously helped me as well. And uh, we, did, we, we did some good things. And, uh, of course, in the middle of all this, the oil crisis hit. The 70s were not a good decade for the airline business, for any business. There was uh, minimal growth. We had, uh, you know, a couple of major recessions, but the big thing was the oil crisis that happened began in October of 1973. It was giant for Pan Am because we bought 80% of our fuel uh, internationally. And we had had, we had been paying 15 cents a gallon, okay, for jet fuel since the advent of the jet airplane. Okay, that's what, that's what it was. <laughs> so... Nobody thought much about the cost of the fuel because it was, you know, uh, low, uh, a low price. So overnight in October of 1973, the, our, the price of our fuel, it's all related to this, uh, you know, historic battle. 
uh, uh, the Yom Kippur War and all that, and the uh, OPEC was formed, and they decided and they put an embargo on fuel worldwide. This was during the Nixon administration, and Nixon had put in price controls on petroleum products. So the domestic airlines, uh, when the embargo happened, didn't, didn't have any impact on them. They, uh, their prices went up, but they were but they, but they were frozen by this edict from President Nixon. We bought our 80% of our fuel internationally, which went from 15 cents a gallon to 44 cents a gallon. Okay. Holy smokes. Overnight. Okay. Overnight. Wow. <laughs> it was absolutely hopeless situation. You can't raise fares to make up that kind of mm-hmm. what what did TWA do? Because they had domestic and international. Uh, TWA had very minimal routes, you know, compared they just flew the North Atlantic. And uh, that's all they had. They didn't fly the Pacific or Latin America. So that was a mm, international, perhaps it's 20%, around 20% of their total business. Ours was 100%. So Pan Am was really in a bind. And uh, then we had 41,000 employees at that point. And we went through a dreadful uh, period where we just had to cut back on routes. We had to analyze every route we flew. And uh, a lot of the routes were, you know, you know uh, developmental routes where we're building the traffic over time. And uh, so we had to abandon all that. We, we cut back, a very painful period. Uh, we cut back from 41,000 employees to about 28,000. And as the senior managers of the company, it was you know, very hard to do that, but we had no choice. Uh, the, we're losing money. The banks are on our case. And, but uh, that actually turned the company around. We started to break even. And then we're getting now into the uh, late 70s again now. And I was the uh, executive vice president of marketing and services. So I had all the service people under me. I had over half of the employees would work for me at that point. So we struggled, and but we were uh, we were making progress because we had reduced our costs. Uh, usually, we were able to raise our fares somewhat, and of course, we had to deal with the introduction of the seven forty seven as well. Let's talk about the seven forty seven because it was revolutionary when it was introduced. But the nineteen seventies were a very turbulent time for the airlines, especially international carriers like Pan Am. There was the oil crisis and a new age of terrorism. Let's talk about the 747. You joined Pan Am right when the aircraft was launched and the jumbo jet era began. Now, the 747 was obviously a great airplane. It did enable uh, lower fares because the seat mount cost was lower uh, compared to a 707 or any smaller airplane. So you could, you had room to lower the fares. And when I was a marketing guy, uh, even before I took over services as well, it was just uh, uh, pastor marketing. Uh, that's when I uh, interfaced with Juan Tripp. He was still he was still around then, and uh, of course uh, he's the one who brought Halliby in and and so forth. He thought Halliby was going to help us with a government situation because Halliby had been head of the FA under the Kennedy administration. So he thought he was bringing somebody in who could have a little horsepower in uh, in uh, D.C. 
Uh, so that's when I started to go to Washington to, to, to try to, of course, we had to explain why we wanted to raise fares to compensate for the fuel and, and all the other uh, huge issues we had with no domestic routes. That's when I, met, I really was astounded to find out the negative attitudes about Pan Am and the bureaucrats in Washington. Uh, the routes still had to be assigned, and at that point, they started to award international routes to some of the large domestic carriers as well. So we had a, we had quite a battle on our hands. But the interesting uh, part, <laughs> I shouldn't say interesting, the negative part of it was that it was this very negative view of Pan Am and the bureaucrats. And that's when I started to go to D.C. in a period of time. I was, wow, what did we do? I mean, what's the uh, problem here? I finally got some of them to, uh, uh, to talk you know, frankly, and what they told me, and I can't, you know, I, I can't vouch for this as being the absolute truth. I, this is what I was told uh, by bureaucrats. Well, we, we don't we don't like Pan Am because, uh, you know, if you go back in the history of Pan Am, uh, one trip tended to, uh, you know, bypass us at the CAB and so forth. And <laughs> the story was, that I, I, as I said, I, I can't vouch for the... Uh, the truth of this, but I'm just telling you what I was told, and it seemed it seemed reasonable, okay, that in uh, in Pan Am's heyday when he first started, let's say during World War II when Roosevelt was the president, uh, Pan Am was really getting into its own. And this would be in the 40s. For our listeners, the CAB stands for the Civil Aeronautics Board, so I think I know where you're going here. Juan Tripp was not only good friends with Franklin Roosevelt, but his brother-in-law, Edward Statinius, held many high-level positions in the Roosevelt administration and became U.S. Secretary of State in June of 1944. Many of the bureaucrats on the CAB had ties with people in other airlines and resented Pan Am for many years afterwards for that special relationship with President Roosevelt. Give us your insight. So Juan had access in the government, you know, well above the bureaucrats <laughs> than the CAB. So when something didn't go so well, he would go to his uh, father and and say, you know, those idiots at the CAB, I'm, a, I'm using, that's my own phrase. <laughs> they're doing this to us and they're hurting us, which they were, by the way. <laughs> but um, so he was, he was able to bypass uh, the minions at the CAB and, um, uh, you're you're in the government service yourself, so you know there's a uh, institutional memory in uh, in the in the uh, government agencies. <laughs> so that I was told that I assume it's true. It sounded you know logical and so forth, and that they were just against Pan Am. I mean, there was no doubt about it, and we were doing things. And I got to know some of these guys. And I say, why are you screwing us? I mean, this is uh, ridiculous. Well, yeah, this reason we have to let the domestic carriers have international. Okay, we'll give us some domestic routes to attack. Let us fire Transcon from New York to San Francisco for openers for our, uh, our around the world flight. Uh, well, there was, it was just a bad scene, okay? Deregulation clouded that up because we were already deregulated, as far as I was concerned, because the foreign flags were, you know, I remember one issue with the State Department, especially. Uh, uh, KLM flew to New York, and then they wanted to expand to Chicago, to Houston, to San Francisco, and Seattle. In fact, I was uh, 
I was asked to testify on the CAB hearings in those days. We said, so they were they were granting KLM all these new routes to the U.S. and we have one destination in in Netherlands. What's that? Amsterdam. That's the only it's the only city of any size. And so we had New York, Amsterdam. Big deal. They, uh, KLM had uh, Amsterdam, uh, New York, uh, Washington, uh, Boston, Chicago, L.A., etc., etc. I won't let them know. So I was talking to the State Department guys. And I said, well, you know, can't you guys protect American companies because, you know, we're, we're getting killed here? They said, no. And they said, well, uh, so uh, it went up the line to Kistier, and he said, no, no, it'd be nice on that. They're going to buy F-14s, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a high priority for the country. <laughs> so I, I'm smiling, but, I mean, it's like, what? They're going to buy F-14s, so that's why they get all these routes. But that's the kind of stuff that you, we were told. It was horrible. And, of course, the Kale, you know, uh, the Dutch, I give them credit for this, is not they are mercantile people. Okay, they've been trading for their, this little tiny country, and in uh, uh, Europe has been a very prosperous trading company for decades and decades. It's probably, and they had every trick in the book. I mean, <laughs> there's one of the worst carriers to compete with because they had every dirty trick in the book in terms of special deals and so forth. I was actually friend with friends with the CEO of Kellen. Uh, Sergio Orlandini, he was an Italian guy, so I got to be CEO of uh, KLM, so he and I became friends, because I was Italian heritage also, and uh, we had that little, uh, you know, commonality at any rate. So that's what was happening to Pan Am. We had a huge struggle. Let's circle back. So you knew uh, Mr. Tripp, Mr. Hallaby, and Mr. Sewell personally. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they were like? Let's start with Mr. Tripp first. Well, Juan Tripp was a giant, okay? I mean, everything that's said about him was true. He was very aggressive. He built Pan Am from, you know, flying from uh, Key West to Havana in 1929 to what it was. He, but it was interesting. He had, a, he had a formula, which if you knew the company, you could follow it. He, his 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 primary strategy was to always be first with the biggest and the fastest airplanes, and he did that with the you know, with the Clippers and so forth. We had the biggest flying boats, the fastest ones, and so forth. And of course, we were uh, early on with the seven hundred seven. And uh, in fact, we were buying in uh, when I arrived in in April nineteen seventy. I came to Pan Am. They were still taking deliveries on 707s and DC-8s. And then, of course, Pan Am came out with the announcement, I think in 69, don't hold me to that, but it's about the 747 order, which was, you know, revolutionary order, Pan Am Order 25, uh, 747. And the story there was he went to, he was good friends with uh, Bob Allen, who was the uh, chairman and CEO of Boeing, they were obviously were good friends. He had bought many Boeing airplanes through the years, and uh, Boeing offered this, uh, the 747 to all the airlines, and they, I think without exception, they rejected it because it was felt it was too big too soon. They were still uh, digesting the the 707 and the DCAs and so forth, but not one. 
this was uh, this was right up his uh, right up his hose pipe, so to speak. Biggest airplane, fastest airplane, you know, revolutionized air transportation, which it did. And he jumped right in, Order Twenty Five. And uh, even though they were very cheap in those days, <laughs> the first seven forty-seven cost eighteen and a half million dollars. Okay? Wow! <laughs> Today, a seven forty-seven sells for I don't know two hundred million, something like that. I'm not sure of the exact price, but it's way up there. But nevertheless, uh, twenty-five of them was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, once it was announced that. Um, Pan Am was doing this. It, it was a huge, uh, exciting uh, announcement worldwide. But it was, how can you have an airplane that basically carried 400 passengers? My God, when you have a crash, you know, it was, it was a positive and a negative, but mostly positive. Of course, the other airlines, uh, the, especially the international airlines, hey, we're not letting Pan Am get away with this. So they, they all placed orders. Of course, TWA did. And uh, the domestics were a little slower to, to order them because they, you know, they just, didn't have the need that longer range and the capacity and so forth. But the, I think American ordered a few and so forth, but uh, the real orders came in from the international guys who we were competing with. And so <laughs> every airline put in big orders for 747. So Juan said, Jesus, we only ordered 25. We better order eight more. <laughs> so we had 33 coming. Then we started thinking about freight, but gee, we, you know, these would make beautiful freighters. Wow. So we ordered six more, six freighters coming. And there's another of uh, these, the 747 SP is still to come. Okay, that's a more 747s coming, but that's later on. So here we are. We got, we're still taking deliveries on 707s and DC8s. They're about, you know, they were still had a, forget the numbers we had, but, you know, a substantial number of those airplanes. And uh, so the 7-4 arrived at a very poor time in terms of the uh, world economy. It was not a good time. The 70s were a whole situation with the um, OPEC and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you have uh, hijackings, terrorism. Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah that was... <laughs> I mean, the 70s were a tumultuous period. You, you, that's that's my whole experience with Pan Am, so I can attest to that. Speaking of hijackings, the it's an amusing part of hijacking. So uh, in the early days, about once a month or so, we'd get hijacked because some uh, Cuban wanted to go to Havana, and so we'd have to land in Havana. They never uh, did any damage to the planes. They would have to, you know. Uh, non-stop to Rio had had to land Havana and uh, had to wait around until got approved to leave. The guy got off the plane and fine. There was never any uh, violence there at all, except uh, one day uh, plane was there for like four or five hours or saying, Hey, what's, what's the problem here? Get that flight moving. I mean, it's bad enough to get hijacked, but now we're there for, Five or six hours of work came back home. Uh, uh, Castro heard about it and he wants, he'd never seen a 747. So he wants to see the, he wants to inspect the 747. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the plane had to wait there while Castro came. <laughs> and when the captain came a tour of the plane, he said, Oh, this is great. So, okay, you can leave now. <laughs> uh, Very interesting. Totally different time because obviously, uh, as we know in history, 
you know, the hijackings became violent in the seventies and, and, and violent in the eighties as well. These were, these were friendly ones. They, they, of course, obviously, if you already said it got much worse internationally, we were pretty fortunate. Uh, we, the worst one we had was in, um, in Rome, and that was on the 707, when mm-hmm. PLO came on board and uh, took over the airplane at the gate, and, and uh, they tried to get him up, and he threw some hand grenades down the aisle and kills, uh, I forget the number, it might have been six or eight people were killed on the, you know, the airplane, and the airplane had a hole blown in and so forth. But uh, Terrible situation. Yeah, that was, uh, fortunately, you know, it wasn't an airborne type thing where we lost it to killed everybody, but uh, it was bad enough. So when you joined Pan Am, Juan Tripp was already retired, but he was still working. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with him. He was certainly there. He was, he was, he was uh, working there. And he would, because I was the marketing guy, he would come by my office and say, gee, uh, uh, you know, this plane, uh, these seven fours are going to let us lower fares. We had a lower seat now cost. And I said, Juan, I totally agree. And so we came up with a lot of innovative fares, which... Then you had to, we were still part of IATA, so it had to go through the whole IATA bureaucracy when you wanted to lower fares. We are going to take a quick break with a Pan Am commercial from 1979. Because we fly people who move the world, and people who watch the world, people who make the world work, and people who make the world smile, We've got a good idea what the world wants from an airline. So we have our full-service economy class, offering every Pan Am passenger complete service no matter how inexpensive their ticket. We have Clipper class, giving full fare passengers even more service, including free drinks and hors d'oeuvres, plus an empty seat beside them whenever possible. And in first class aboard our 747 SPs, we're introducing a luxurious new table for two dining and unique reclining sleeperette seats, the most comfortable chairs in the air. Now we've got three great ways to fly the world. Welcome back to our interview with Dan Colusi, President and Chief Operating Officer of Pan Am in the late 1970s. For our listeners, IATA stands for the International Air Transport Association, and it sets technical standards for airlines, formulates industry policy and standards, and also fixes airfare prices. Uh, Pan Am actually founded uh, IATA way back in 1930 or something. And there were, those days, there were 106 airlines in, uh, in IATA. I'm sure there's a lot more today. And but, but in those days, the fares had to be submitted through IATA, and they were, uh, if they were approved, then that became, you know, the legal fares. And in the U.S., uh, the CAB had to approve them after IATA approved them, so they became legal fares. If you if you sold, uh, you were you were breaking the law in the U.S. if you sold anything other than what was uh, the approved fare because it had gone through the IATA approval and then. Uh, by the CAB, uh, so there was still a CAB in those days. Uh, the CAB didn't go away until 1978, I think, is uh, when the uh, CAB was dissolved. But um, 
And those were the fares. Okay, so we had to buy by our lawyers were very rigid on that and said, don't you guys don't just, you know, play around with these fares because uh, you'd be breaking the law. Well, the foreign flags were having a field day because they they had every trick in the book to, uh, you know, discount the fares to travel agents in ways which weren't. Uh, and, and we couldn't do that. We were, we were getting into legal trouble. So we were hurting from that uh, quite a bit. And um, hurt quite a lot, I should say. And because uh, we were, in, in addition to have no domestic feed, we had to deal with all this unethical behavior of the foreign flags. And as I already said, KLM was a master of this. They had every trick in the book, as did every other airline for that matter. And they had their government supporting them. They they didn't worry about a profit because they they were not public. They were not privately owned. They were owned by their governments. It's just they were they were government agency, mm-hmm. almost without exception. Then that's changed, of course, dramatically in not in current times. But back then they were one hundred percent owned. They were they were an instrument of national policy. Okay, and if they want to develop tourism, yeah, let's find ways to bring tourism here. And if we need low fares. Who cares? So nobody nobody really cared. It seemed. <laughs> The president of Alitalia told me once, he's, I don't know whether I was president then or not, but I, I forget, but I, I knew him and I used to meet him at meetings and he said, uh, I said, you guys keep doing this and dropping fares to, and, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna join you and, uh, you know, we're going to fight you and we're going <laughs> to, I was saying that knowing he couldn't do it <laughs> and he couldn't do it. He said, he said, come on, you guys are not going to do that. He said, besides. Uh, you know, when you're bleeding, uh, you don't want to fight a blood bank, okay? <laughs> That's us. In other words, we had unlimited money. So, <laughs> any other personal stories you'd like to share about working with Juan Trip? Well, Ron would come, uh, he, yes, he would. He would come to my office and say, uh, you know, can't we lower some fares? And I said, Juan, look, we have we've instituted for the first time youth fares, senior citizen fares, group fares. Uh, I had hated all this because this was a uh, uh, group fair. I mean, the travel agent could set up a tour and we could give him a special price. So we were doing all that. And I said, you know, we're, you get any ideas? We're, we're open to it because we're doing, you know, everything you can do to, to lower fares. And it, and it was stimulating traffic. I mean, the, there's no doubt the 747 permitted the, the average citizen to fly internationally. And that was a big thing. Uh, before that, it was only the, uh, you know, the upper strata that flew internationally and so forth. And now this opened up the whole world. And Pan Am was developing markets all over the world. In uh, Japan, for example, uh, we were the first ones. Jal was still in its incipient stages. They weren't that aggressive. So we started to fly uh, Japanese tourists for the first time. After the war, they didn't go anyplace. And suddenly they had the resources, now they wanted to start flying, so we obliged them. And we developed markets out of Japan. We flew tourists to, um, well, the first the first flights we had were to uh, Guam. And Guam is, uh, you know, it's nice beaches and there were some hotels there. And God, we flew, we had a real successful market going. And then we flew to Indonesia to, uh, to Bali, the Japanese tourists, they loved it. And they, you know, they have these mass weddings in Japan. Like a hundred uh, couples will get married at once, and they all take a vacation together. So we were, we were exploiting all that. We had a real good market, 
And then we said, hey, let's try Hawaii. It's a, oh, they loved Hawaii. We started, we had two or three flights a day from Tokyo to Hawaii. But then, of course, once we did that, Jal got onto it and then uh, Aaron upon eventually and so forth. But for a while there, we were very uh, you know, innovative and uh, developed these markets. So, uh, but getting back to Juan, yeah, you know, we did everything we could. I, I had a good relationship with him. I admired him, obviously. I mean, who wouldn't admire Pan Juan? His two sons worked for the company, uh, Ed, Ed, Ed and uh, Charles, and uh, I was good friends with them. One worked for the hotel company, and, and Charlie, uh, he, was, he was in charge of planning and uh, route planning and stuff. And um, so it was, it was a happy family. I mean, it, uh, it wasn't... Uh, a lot of uh, uh, internal fighting. Then one, then uh, I'm trying to think when it was. Maybe after Halaby, I'm, I'm not sure. But one then sort of did fade away. He was out of the company. I think that's about the time Halaby was let go, and and, uh, and Bill Sewell took over. Bill Sewell and I were we had a very good relationship. As I said, went, went back years and. Uh, and I think I helped him, and, I, and he helped me. I think we had a very good relationship. I was promoted, and I became executive vice president of marketing and services. Because I always complained about the, you know, the flight attendants. Uh, if they were part of marketing, we could uh, incentivize them more and so forth, which is true, by the way. Because then I used to have a lot of meetings with flight attendants all over the world. We had, uh, you know, we had a lot of foreign flight attendants, and uh, because we they had the language capability and. Uh, so we had a lot of Scandinavian, Japanese, a lot of Germans, uh, women, and so forth. And uh, they were excellent uh, flight attendants. You know, uh, in those days, they had retired age 32. Okay. Wow. That's wild. And they reported in. They had to be weighed. And they had to wear girls and so forth. <laughs> Can you imagine us getting away with that today? I mean. <laughs> but they loved it. I mean, this, these were, uh, you know, college, mostly college educated because they had to speak a language. And we had the top notch flight uh, attendants. Uh, but um, they were an independent bunch, though. And then and they had a leader that got to be very militant. Uh, I forget her name now, but she was she was tough. And uh, so at any rate, yeah, I knew Bill was fine. And uh, he uh, and I knew his wife very well, Judy. So uh, we went we were the first Americans to go in Japan. We were to uh, the People's Republic of China in January of 1974. Uh, we were invited to visit China, the People's Republic of China. Uh, they had just been opened up. If you remember, Kissinger and Nixon uh, opened that up. And we were pretty much the first Americans or the first group of Americans that visited there. George Bush and his wife were the American representatives in then Peking before it was changed to be at Beijing. And uh, so we, we got to meet the Bushes as well when we flew in there. And we spent three weeks and we had, we got the uh, VIP tours. They, we, we had these uh, chauffeur driven cars. They were, they, they were, they were Chinese made, but they looked like old Packards, you know? They, <laughs> <laughs> so every place we went, we went, uh, we uh, we flew into uh, in those days you couldn't fly into China only uh, <laughs> the Russian airplanes could fly into China so we flew into Hong Kong and then went to a new territory in China which is the northern part of Hong Kong and there's the bridge we 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 literally walked into China 
Bill Sewell and I and his wife, and we had another a couple with us, and we had to carry our suitcases and walked over this little bridge to get into China. And there, got on a railroad and went to Canton. Of course, they changed the name there as well. And uh, we were welcomed every place we went. So you were hired by Mr. Hallaby. Can you describe the leadership style of Mr. Hallaby and Mr. Sewell and the differences between their two leadership styles? Uh, Najib, uh, Najib Hallaby was very personable, um, but inexperienced in uh, commercial matters. Okay, I'll put it that way. He had been head of the FAA and He's been a Navy pilot and so forth. He's uh, very good looking, handsome, attractive, well-spoken, all those wonderful things. As I said earlier, I think Juan hired him, even though he had no airline experience, because he felt he had, uh, it was a Kennedy administration, he thought that he had some you know, some horsepower in D.C. And Halliday would be the first one to tell you, look, I, that's not why I want this job. I don't know. That's not what I want to do. It's not. Uh, but anyway, that's why I was hired. And, but I think I would say that since he had no uh, commercial experience at all, it, it never, I don't think he had ever worked, best of my knowledge, he never worked for a company. He had always been in the government, military, and so forth. So this was all a real chore to him. And he was very involved in charities and stuff. He, he, was, he, he, was, he was very liberal, so he was involved in you know a lot of the... Uh, Charities in New York and so forth, all of which was fine, except the company was in dire shapes. Okay, the company was losing money, big money. The banks were on our case and so forth. So uh, I would say Najib uh, just, you know, he just didn't have it. Okay, as a CEO, he had a lot of the characteristics, but he didn't have that commercial drive the, uh, the, which you need to run a complex company, especially. And in Washington, he, 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 he wasn't helping. So that's when the board let him go. I forget the date now when that was. It was about the time that Juan phased out too, I think. I'm not sure of that. But, and uh, Bill, Bill Sewell came in. And that was good because Bill, even though he had been in the military his whole life, he was a general uh, in the Air Force. He, and he had been to Rolls-Royce as the president of Rolls-Royce uh, in North America. So he had some industrial experience. He was good. He uh, he brought in some other people that had experience. Uh, Bill Crilly from Eastern Airlines, who was an experienced airline guy. He was good. And we, we uh, this is when we did the cutbacks and so forth and got Pan Am back profitable. So uh, Bill did a good job on that as far as I was concerned. I, knew him so i was prejudiced but and i certainly uh you know advanced under him but i i think I, I helped him and he helped me and i helped the airline as well as far as i'm concerned so we instituted a lot of things and you know there was a lot of uh, innovation that you could do at pan am because the, the guy had been from the marketing point of view and uh, I, I don't want to make any uh, you know special claims or anything but i did a lot of things like that which i mean the fair structure I built up a, a very strong relationship with the travel agent community, which Pan Am had been neglected because they were like the king. And, you know, travel agents were okay, but they had to pay them commissions and uh, they weren't they weren't encouraged. So I, I spent a lot of time with the uh, travel agents speaking at their groups all over the world. I'd go to their meetings and stuff. And uh, so we, we ended up getting very good support from the, from the agents. 
So that was one thing I, that I was able to do. And the fair structures, we had to fight for those, but uh, that was good. That's what, of course, that's what Juan wanted, and that was a sensible thing to do. We had these big airplanes and uh, plenty of seats to sell for sure. And as long as you're, the thing about lower fares, as long as you have enough restrictions on them so you can preserve your higher fares, your, your first class passengers. In other words, you put enough restrictions on your low fares so the people that have the money that want to travel and need to travel on short notice, you know, so you, you can preserve your 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 um, your higher fares, and that's and that's what we did. That 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 took a lot of uh, study on my part and a lot of uh, discussions. And IATA was a big problem for Pan Am uh, because uh, I, I mentioned earlier the, the fare structures had to go through them and they had to take these votes, and there were 160. <laughs> I went to a couple of meetings and I just threw up. I said, "This is just ridiculous." I mean, we're this airline's in trouble, and we have to do all this bureaucracy, and they were all cheating on us anyhow, out of the table. So I went to Bill Sewell and said, "You know, the big thing we have to do, Bill, is get out of IATA. We have to resign. The 106 airlines." And when I uttered that, everybody, "Oh my God, Pan Am founded IATA. You can't do this." You know? It's like, how, how can you even contemplate that? I said, well, look, it's it's nothing but a negative for us, okay? So at, at, uh, I had a meeting in France. I, I got up and said, that, you know, at the end of its meeting, Pan Am is submitting their resignation. Oh, my God, it was like a lightning strike or something. There were people, why wow, you can't do that? <laughs> so forth and so on. When I, when I got back to New York, I had to have meetings with the employees because they were all upset too. Well, how do you put in IATA since its founding years? And so <laughs> I explained it all. It was very helpful, okay? Because now the lawyers, now it wasn't illegal anymore. If we wanted to play games with travel agents by, they had these stupid things they were doing, like if a, uh, if a travel agent would set up a tour, he has to... Uh, he has to make a brochure, okay? He has to get it to go to print and uh, design and print and so forth. Well, what, what these guys were doing and Cal uh, uh, and they're all doing, they were they were paying the travel agents for their for their for their tour books. So that was like you know several thousand dollars they would get uh, as a bonus. Well, we could do that. That was illegal. Well, now we could do that. So so we spent out a special office in the legal department so they. Uh, the marketing guys, when they wanted to make a deal with a travel agent, they had to go to the legal department to get it approved because now we were out of IATA, so we could do this. So um, that was that was uh, you know a, a big thing, and that helped enormously in getting uh, you know enhancing our business because now we we didn't, we could we could compete. Okay, if they were doing this, we could match it, or we could have something similar. And what was it like to be president of this prestigious company? It was a surprise to me. I, uh, when, I when I was being president, um, this is not atypical. I mean, uh, marketing guys, uh, companies are always under attack by the finance department and other, especially if your revenues might be off the planet. <laughs> the marketing guys are always being attacked. And I was under constant attack. Board meetings. I was I was put on the board of directors by Bill Sewell, which was uh, great. 
Uh, but at the board meetings, the uh, more often, uh, very often, I would get attacked by the by the chief financial officer about you know you're missing forecast. That's why we're losing money. So, so, so I was always on the edge all those years and figured, you know, at some point I'm going to get fired because the, uh, the marketing guy always takes the dive when yeah. things aren't going well. So we had we had a big more board meeting. And this is in late 77. And uh, I was attacked as usual by the CF, CFO. <laughs> by the way, his job prior to coming to Pan Am, you're from Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. He was the chief financial officer for the state of Ohio. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know. There's a there's always an Ohio connection to everything. So I'm saying, so I was telling him, if he's attacking me, I'm saying, well, how does a guy go from being the treasurer of the state of Ohio to the CFO of Pan Am? What's the, what's the connection? <laughs> so he and I didn't get along, though, for obvious reasons. So um, we had this one meeting a very uncomfortable meeting and so forth and i was the bottom of the uh some not the whole meeting of course but just when we were doing the i had to get up every meeting and give a presentation on our on our revenues versus plan and so forth so it's always a bit of discussion about that as there is in any company i, I still do it today in the companies i'm involved with so it's nothing to do about it so i had kind of a bad meeting and i went back to my office i was on the 46th floor in the sort of the center of the uh, hallway, and the chairman was uh, at the corner office, and the boardroom was right opposite his office. It was a huge boardroom in Pan Am building. So they, uh, after the board, at the, as the board meeting was terminating, they, they announced we're going to have an executive committee meeting of the board, meaning the managers on the board are not invited. It's just for the outside directors. So I thought to myself, okay, well. <laughs> When you have the executive committee, it's usually somebody's going to get fired, so it's probably going to be me. So I, I was totally prepared for it. I thought, you know, I, at this point, I was 46 years old. And I thought, look, this, um, this is a tough job. And, I, you know, I, there's so many other opportunities I had anyhow. <laughs> if I get fired, so be it. I was totally prepared. So have the executive committee, everybody's uh, board leaves and so forth. I get a call from the secretary, the chairman, he wants to see me, come to his office. And, okay, well, this is my thought. This, I'm going to be fired. It's fine. I'm adjusted to it. I'm prepared. So I get out of Sewell's office and uh, she said, uh, well, Dan, you know, we have an executive committee on the board. And I said, yeah, I'm aware of that, Bill. <laughs> and the uh, board uh, asked me to ask you if you'd become, if you'd accept the job as president of the company. <laughs> I said, what? President, I thought I was going to be fired. I didn't tell him that. Wow. So you thought you were going to be fired really and they didn't. gave you presidency of the company. <laughs> so what it was clearly, I mean, the board knew I was doing a good job and doing the best you could do on these circumstances. And this guy was badgering me, was not the, whatever. In other words, I was fine. Okay. The board liked what I was doing and uh, they wanted me to be president. Okay. So, you're right. And Sewell had been president and chief executive, so they wanted, and chairman, so they wanted to separate and have it be two jobs. Well, that was fine with me. Bill was the chairman and CEO, and I was president and chief operating officer. So I had 
full. I started having meetings immediately seven o'clock in the morning all, all over the world, uh, you know, wanting to know on-time performance, got into all that good stuff. We did good. In fact, uh, in 78, uh, we were made uh, record profits in 1978. 79, we had a very good year. In 1980, another fuel crisis, another Middle East crisis on fuel. So our fuel prices went up. It was a very difficult year. So I'd been with Pan Am then about uh, 10 or 11 years, 11 years or so. And, you know, uh, I had a lot of opportunities. People were always approaching me. I, had to get, I was being interviewed by the, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, so uh, People American Express were very high on me, and the German American Express would, uh, you know, call me occasionally, just do social things and so forth. So I had opportunities, okay, uh, other than Pan Am, and it was it was it was a tough job being a marketing guy at Pan Am. <laughs> Got me all, all these troubles that we had. Uh, so in uh, you can see we're now into 1980. Yeah, the towards the end of 1980, and uh, I've been approached by some uh, people to do some other things. Okay, outside of Pan Am, which really uh, interested me quite a bit. Uh, Bill Sewell became aware of it, and we talked about it. And he said, "Look, Dan, if you want to do this, you're going to, you know, it's not going to work. You're going to have to leave the company." And I said, "Bill, that's that's the truth, and that's what I want to do." So it was at the very end of 1980. Very young, very end 1980. We parted company, and I went off and did some other things. But the years that I went, the first years I was president were really great years: 78, 79. And uh, 80 was okay, but it was the fuel thing came up again, another fuel crisis. And uh, so I had like 11 years of panic, okay? And uh, obviously they were great years, uh, good and bad experiences, but overall I, I became president at age 46, okay? So I was still a fairly young guy. I left, I just should uh, turn 50 then. That's great. So, so what is it about Pan Am that still captures the public's imagination and attention? Like you, I would almost ask the same question. Uh, but this is the thing that we had at Pan Am, which was unique, is the employees, you know, the average employee, the pilot, the flight attendant, the average person look at the ticket office or at the airport, they sort of knew of these issues that I was talking to you about were on, but you know, to them, this was a very prestigious company, which it was. If you were a flight attendant at Pan Am, you were at the top of drawer, okay? And pretty much the other people as well. And every place we went all over the world, Pan Am was respected. You, you, was, so, you know, the, the foreign countries thought that Pan Am was the airline of the US, okay? That we were the national carrier. And which we weren't, of course, we were the opposite of that, practically. But um, so it was, it was a, and you know, you flew all these exotic places and um, it was just an exciting career. And people got transferred around, they got to visit. And, um, so it was, it was a great place to work, okay? And it's just, it was so unfortunate that you had these economic problems and these regulatory problems, which were, 
worked against the company so badly. Uh, but we could still survive. And, uh, you know, it went bankrupt in 1991. So that was uh, uh, 11 years after I left the company. Back in, in that era, Delta went bankrupt, American went bankrupt, United went bankrupt. Okay, so that's because it was, again, a troubled situation with fuel and this and that and all kinds of the airlines now. They weren't protected like they were, you know, as I said, you know, back in uh, 1973 and 74. There was no price controls or anything like that. So they they were suffering like everybody. And um, they all went bankrupt. Were you ever the heir apparent to Mr. Sewell? Yeah, I could have been probably if I'd have stayed with the, if I'd have stayed with the company, I probably would have been. I, the board was, um, uh, I, I found this out afterwards, that the board was very, uh, you know, I, I had a good relationship with the board of directors. They liked what I did, and um, I had a good, because I heard from a lot of them after I left. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, I was, I was a logical successor to probably looking back do you have any second guesses about leaving or do you still think that was the right decision for you yeah for me personally it was the right decision because i have a lot of entrepreneurial instincts built into me and uh when you run a a company as um you know as limited i say limited in terms of actions you can take because of its size and the regulatory issues and the labor issues and so forth. Uh, it's hard to do entrepreneurial things. And uh, so I went down that other route and had a very successful career and uh, made you know a lot of money and so forth. And uh, oh, I didn't do it for money. I mean, I was, that's not one of my, if I wanted money when I graduated from Harvard, I'd gone to Wall Street. Okay. And that was <laughs> good points. No way I was going to do that. People say, you're going to the airlines? Well, you must be out of your mind. I mean, <laughs> don't make any money. So this uh, podcast program is listened to all over the world. And we have a museum on Long Island outside of New York City where uh, visitors from all over the world come to, to, to see the Pan Am Museum within the Cradle of Aviation Museum. What message do you have for people that are interested in Pan Am history and also, what message do you have for the former employees that worked for Pan Am when you were part of leadership? Well, I was, uh, let's start with that first. The, the, I was very much uh, sensitive to employees. I always felt close to them. I, I supported AWARE, which was the, uh, in, in fact, Sewell was, didn't particularly like AWARE. He thought it was just a nuisance, but I supported AWARE. Uh, when I left Pan Am, the Aware Group took out an ad in the New York Times thanking me for my service. Bill Sewell got very pissed off at that. And, uh, I said, nothing to do with it, Bill. I didn't know about it. I saw it the next day myself. <laughs> and for our listeners, can you explain what Aware is? Uh, aware was, they came up with the name, meaning they're aware of our situation. It was a group of employees, really started by a flight attendant, uh, and she motivated the flight attendants and the pilots and 
a lot of the ground people as well uh, to form a group. And they had meetings all over the, they had chapters of several cities. And they decided on their own that they were going to go plead Pan Am's case for the government. To, I mean, where, let's say, management was unable to get a hearing uh, on the Hill with uh, important people. A bunch of employees show up in uniform and say, hey, you know, here's the story. We're, we're, we're getting uh, improperly treated. They got a good reception because, you know, if you go to a politician's office and you you're this uh, president or the chief marketing officer or something. I mean, you're, you're very suspect, okay, if you walk into it. But an employee, uh, an attractive employee, especially wearing a uniform and so forth, they, they would get an audience. And I'm not sure what they accomplished, but their mission was very, uh, you know, very positive. And it showed the basic love of the company I can use that term uh, that they, that the employees had, and it's it's amazing to this day. Okay, they went bankrupt in '91, and this is '22. Okay, I mean it's uh, thirty getting thirty years here, and uh, you still have employees, former employees, of course, that are willing to support the company, and of course I joined the uh, the uh, foundation as well. And, uh, and I'm happy to help them however I can. Uh, and there's this, uh, this uh, incredible lawyer. They were basically good employees, most, you know, upscale. This, there weren't any uh, low-level people that were part of Pan Am. These were uh, well-trained, uh, dedicated people, okay? And um, due to this combination of events is so unfortunate that it had to end up in a uh, in a liquidation of the company. That's a, okay, bankruptcy was not a disgrace. Okay, bankruptcy laws are set up to let companies reorganize and every major airline, I'm sure there are exceptions, I can't remember exactly, but all the majors, uh, you know, went into Chapter 11 and struggled to get out and they did and here they are, they're still flying and Pan Am's gone and get all split up into pieces and so forth. Of course, employees went with these airlines and they still had jobs. Uh, at least most of them did, I think. A lot probably didn't. But um, it was a tragedy, frankly. I, I'd been gone for so long and I, I just was stunned by the fact that they were, uh, you know, into uh, a liquidation process, chapter so. So I, but I, but I understood and that's why I still and part of the group that's holding it together. I'm amazed and pleased by the fact that we still have that spirit. And now they're, uh, I'm, I'm trying to recruit my daughters to join. And I, a lot of the uh, people, the uh, former employees are getting their offspring to, to join the foundation and so forth. Excellent. Well, also tell them about the Panium podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I will. I will for sure. Yeah, no, that's 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 going to be very helpful, and uh, thank you for doing that. That's uh, that's going to be a wonderful thing. No, it's uh, because it's, it is an interesting story. I mean, Pan Am was a major factor in the development of air travel worldwide. Okay, from day one, 
And you just have to admire one trip for that type of initiative and vision and so forth. I, you know, I was, he, he, he couldn't resist the 747. We probably, <laughs> in retrospect, I would say we'd probably been better off because we had plenty of airplanes we had. One of the problems we had is in the marketing area, where are we going to put these airplanes? We were getting like one a week, okay. And okay, we put one, obviously, you know, London, uh, Paris, Rome, uh, Rio, you put one to a couple of Japan, but you have to stop in Alaska in those days, it couldn't go nonstop. And uh, put some in the Hawaii market, which was very low yield. Didn't work in the Caribbean. They put a put some to uh, you know Rio and Venezuela, uh, stuff like that. Uh, but they kept coming, okay. And uh, they started to put them in Amsterdam. Well, that's you know that's a very marginal market, and and we actually had pretty good luck putting them in Africa because we served eighteen countries in Africa. So we puddle jumped across Africa, starting in Senegal and ending up in uh, uh, Nairobi going up different routes uh, each day and went to South Africa to uh, to uh, Joburg and so forth. So uh, we ended up getting them distributed, but it was, you know, it was before its time. It was to, uh, because we were still taking deliveries on 707s. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a lot of capacity and put most of 707 into uh, reserve fleet and so forth but um yeah it was it was probably been better not introduced the 747 was not invented you know was not created as a commercial airplane it was created by boeing to compete with the c5 and that contract went to lockheed you know what the c5 is Mm -hmm. monster um, cargo plane well, the 747 was created as a cargo plane, and that's why we had the cockpit on the second level. Because uh, the nose could open up, and the uh, it was designed the landing gear was going to collapse, so you, you'd go right down to ground level and you'd roll on cargo that way. <laughs> that was the design. Boeing lost it, lost uh, lost a Lockheed. So being very creative, they said, "Hey, let's try to sell this to the airlines." you know, change it around, make it into a commercial airplane and seats 400 people or so, depending. And uh, made the rounds. When they first, I was at American and when they came to us the first time, we said, no, it's just a great airplane, but we can't use that kind of capacity. I mean, it's way too big. And we're still absorbing 707 and so forth. Uh, and that was a general feeling, I think, uh, you know, throughout the world. But it, but it caught people's imagination. It's this giant airplane now. I mean, wow, this is fantastic. One had that sense. I mean, he was good at that. I mean, he's first across the Pacific. I mean, you know, you go on and on about the uh, things that that uh, Pan Am did that were, you know, a breakthrough type of uh, um, new, uh, that's what you were exciting to everybody, including employees. Employees loved it. I mean, it's, hey, we're, uh, we're Pan Am and we're respected every place we go and so forth. 
Uh, there's, there's no doubt, you know, when I was with Pan Am, I never had to explain. And I was always given respect as whatever my position was because I was with Pan Am. So I think that, that explains this uh, loyalty. And because that didn't, it didn't, it doesn't happen in typical. Uh, in mm-hmm. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, anything you'd like to tell? future generations that may be interested in learning more about Pan Am history? Well, I think I would say things you've no doubt already heard, but, um, well, when you, when, when you do, uh, creative things on a massive scale that Pan Am was able to do it with such, you know, uh, worldwide visibility, um, I would encourage people to think big. I, I've, in my own way, I've always thought beyond the small things. I took uh, one of my uh, notable accomplishments. I think I have a few, but uh, one certainly was taking uh, the Iridium satellite out of bankruptcy. Okay, it's a. It was a system that cost five billion dollars to build. This sixty-six satellites in space that gave global coverage and it, my Pan Am background actually got me interested because when we, we couldn't commute with our airplanes. They would be gone for hours at a time. We could never commute with them. Now you have a global satellite system where I could I could dial in and, and speak to any captain any place, literally any place in the world. Whatever the North Pole, South Pole, Middle Pacific or Atlantic, I could dial them up and say, hey, you know, or they could dial up and they had a problem. and. Uh, so I, I, I had the vision to take that company out of bankruptcy when every big company in the world had turned it down. And uh, it's now has a market capitalization of uh, $50 billion. So, I mean, it's wow. one of those uh, things that it's hard to explain why companies that could easily have done what I did and so much easier. But as an individual, I was able to do it. And... Uh, and sort of that's kind of the Pan Am spirit. I mean, doing these uh, these things that were very unique and creative, and uh, employees loved that. And I think that I think it was appreciated by even even the competitors uh, admired Pan Am. I think for that initiative, for the, the fact that they were first with almost everything. Juan was first with everything he did, including the seven four seven, of course. <laughs> And uh, it was it, it was a winning strategy. Well, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your time coming on the program. We appreciate you taking the time to share these stories and your very unique insight. Well, I'm happy to do it, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, the tradition of Anam is certainly one that I'm very uh, happy to help. Uh, uh, continue because it's it's something that's worthwhile. My my biggest biggest disappointment today now that now that I'm 91 years old, I ask a young person. I this places where did you work? Oh, I I was uh, I worked at Pan Am. They look at me and say, "Was that an airline?" <laughs> <laughs> These are you know young people, but not so young by the way. <laughs> well, that's what we're trying to change. That's what the the museum. And this program and all of the museum's uh, initiatives and uh, programming, that's what 
we're trying to, to keep alive. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for doing that. And it shows your sensitivity to, you know, great things too. So you should be admired for that. Admired for that. Again, Mr. Colusi, as a fellow Italian, it's an honor to talk to you. And I, I certainly uh, appreciate your time and you uh, taking the time to talk to me. It truly is an honor and I appreciate it. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Pan Am was a pioneer in air travel and still stands as one of the most iconic and innovative airlines in aviation history. That legacy lives on at the Pan Am Museum in Garden City, New York, where you can explore the rich history of the aircrafts and individuals at the heart of the company known as the world's most experienced airline. For more information about the Pan Am Museum, check out our website at www.thepanammuseum.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. As was once a tagline in one of our commercials, we would greatly appreciate your support to help the Pan Am Museum continue making the going great. You can also support the museum by shopping on our online store for all things Pan Am, accessories, apparel, jewelry, books, models, and posters. We want to hear from you. If you have a question for us or want to share your story, our email address is podcast at thepanammuseum.org. As flight crews once said to passengers departing for their destinations around the world, Thank you for flying, Pan Am. Mm-hmm.